Okay, well, make your way to your seats and grab your Bibles. Um, and if, again, I keep reminding you each week, but if you need a timeline and an outline of everything that is where we are in the Old Testament and kind of how all the, all the prophets, these minor prophets, and even the major prophets fit in with a timeline of the kings, those are back on the back table by John back there. You can grab one. Um, they're free. How's that? You can't get much better than that. So grab one of those. But tonight we're going to start the book of Joel, and we'll finish it between um, t- this week and, and next week. So um, turn to the book of Joel with me. So just a little bit of an introduction or a background as, as we start this new book. So of course, you'll never guess who the author of Joel is. Joel, right? So Joel wrote, is, is the minor prophet um, we just finished Hosea, moving into Joel. And many believe that this book, and, it, and again, this isn't definite, but probably written around the date 830 B.C., 830 B.C. So this is um, pre-captivity. And we've been going through, and it's important to know who they're ministering and what is going on in um, the kingdom as a whole. And remember, again, at this time, we have the kingdom is split. We have Israel in the north, right, the ten northern tribes. And then you have Judah in the south, the two uh, tribes in the south. So that's the context of where we are. So if you were with us with, as we went through Hosea, remember Hosea, he ministered to the northern tribes. He ministered to Israel, or oftentimes um, he would refer to them as Ephraim, because Ephraim was the um, largest tribe, the most influential tribe in the north. But Joel, on the other hand, see, Joel's ministering to the southern kingdom. He's ministering to Judah. And so that's the setting. Probably around the time, the same time as Elisha was prophesying in Israel. So that would be, again, in the north, right? So we'll keep making sure that we know the difference there. And at this time, many believe, and and this isn't definite, some believe that we can't know for sure um, what time or or the exact dates and settings uh, for Joel, but many do believe that Joash was king. And if you remember, remember, um, remember the setting, right? There was wicked Ahab and Ahithophel, raised her son, Ahaziah. And Ahaziah f- followed after, after the wickedness of Ahab. So, so wicked just like Ahab was. And what did Ahithophel do? Remember Ahithophel killed all the heirs to the throne when her son died? She, she was just going out and annihilating them all. And in doing that, at this time, Joash was hidden by one of the high priests. Remember the high priest went in and, and took Joash, um, a young, young, young child at this time, probably um, only one year old. And, and it was actually Jehodiah who hid Joash. Six years later, Jehodiah overthrew Ahithophel and Joash became king. So that's the setting. If you go back and if you read and, and back in First uh, and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, right, what's going on with all the kings, that's kind of the context, what, what would be happening in Judah at this time. So 
A quick outline. I, I love outlines. I'm, a, I'm an organized outline person, so um, I, I, it helps me at least to study. So if, you're, if you like um, outlines, then hopefully this will help you too. So looking at it kind of in two parts. So the first part of Joel would be the near fulfillment of Joel, the near fulfillment. So th- that would be chapters 1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 17. And this is the judgment of God on Israel by the nations. So God using the nations around Israel, speaking of his people, but we know specifically Judah, right? To judge his people, to correct them. So that's the near fulfillment of God's judgment. And then the second half, if you're breaking the book down into two parts, would be the far fulfillment of God's judgment. And this would be the day of the Lord or the final judgment. We'll talk specifically what that is later, but you have to know that the, the second half of the book is looking into the future, okay? So that's, that's important to know that. So in the first half, we see that God uses the nations to judge Israel. And, this, and, and as we break down kind of the timeline and, and the, um, what's going on in the end times, as we look at the second half, the far fulfillment, we know at that time God's people— right? The church are delivered, and then God judges the nations. So you see kind of the opposite, right? God's correcting his people, you could almost say, um, in the near fulfillment, but then in the far fulfillment, we know that his people, the church, are delivered, and then God um, judges the nations. So um, we'll break that down a little bit more, but now you know where we're going. Well, many of you, maybe you know the book of Joel, maybe you don't know the book of Joel, but um, one of the key phrases, and it's mentioned a few times in Joel, is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And, and don't worry, we'll, we'll go through this, we'll talk about it in more details. But simply, when we're talking about the day of the Lord, just think about judgment. And it's interesting, right? Judgment, judgment. How many of you ever get that feeling in your stomach, just that, man, pit, when you see something uh, go on that you know just isn't right and you can't do anything about it. They get away with it, it right? God's made us in his image. God's perfect. He's holy. He's just. And so you're made in God's image. I'm made in God's image. And so God's allowed us to share in that attribute of him, right? Of, of wanting justice, desiring justice. See, this happens in, in our house sometimes and it just, I don't know what it is, but every single time we play catchphrase, there's certain people, and I won't name any names, but it might be anybody with not the name of Shashora in our household, and that starts, that ends with green. But when they, when they play catchphrase, it's just completely wrong. Whenever they get it, they just click through, right? You're not allowed to do that. That's against the rules. And what happens? I get this pit in my stomach, and they just go for it. It's not right, and I can't do anything about it. See, that, that injustice just bothers me. And I know that that's a silly example, right? But you, we, we see it all the time. When, when uh, you're driving down the highway, and, and you're, just, you're just cruising, right? And, and you see the lights flash behind you, and you get pulled over. And you're like, are you kidding me? I was going six miles over, and yet I was just passed by 13 people that were going about 80 and nothing, what, what kind of justice is this? There's this injustice. And again, being made in God's image, we have this desire for things to be made right. And as we look at the book of Joel, one of the major themes to take away is that God is just and that God will judge. 
And that's not a very popular topic today. The idea of that, that we've sinned, that we've done an injustice, we've committed sin against a perfect and a holy God, and that one day every man and every woman will stand before him to be judged. You see, but as we think about that, as we look about that, even talking about the day of the Lord, I want you to think about this. How loving is it of God to warn us of coming judgment? God's warning us through the book of Joel. He's warning us that this injustice in the world, one day he will set all things right. But are you ready? Are you prepared? Well, how do we... How do we know if we're ready? How do you know if you're prepared? Well, the Bible tells us this. See, we've all, again, are all sinners. You know that. I I know um, you folks in, in the room tonight. But we're sinners. We've committed an injustice against a perfect and a holy God. And we know that God sent Christ. See, in Romans 3, it tells us this, that in verse three, uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 25, speaking of Christ, it says, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood and through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, the Bible tells us, yes, even as we look at Joel, that judgment is coming, that we will stand before the Lord, and he will execute perfect judgment. So are you prepared? Are you in Christ? Because you see, just as we read in Romans, it says that it's through faith, the the propitiation of his blood, where Christ bore the wrath of God. He bore the judgment of God in my place, in your place, that we might now receive the righteousness of Christ. So then when we stand before God on that day, we, we don't have to worry, right? Because we know that we've been made right because we are in Christ. And that's the grace of God. And so you think about it, again, God will judge. One day God will make all things right. I take comfort in that. God's warning us, are you prepared for judgment? Are you in Christ? Well, if, if you're not in Christ, <laughs> be warned. Accept him. But if, for those of us who, who are in Christ, what are we doing about it? Are we, are we telling others? Are we lovingly telling others that God will judge them one day? And sharing the love of Christ so that's kind of a background, a theme of, of where we're going to be and, and how we're going to look at the book of Joel. So starting in the book of Joel, chapter 1, verse 1, and see in verses 1 through 12, we're going to look at the devastation of sin. So again, this is the near fulfillment of, of God's judgment. His, he's judging his people, Judah, the two southern tribes. And, and notice as we, as we look at verses 1 through 12 that Joel doesn't sugarcoat the judgment that is to come. The judgment that is to come of Judah's sin. He calls sin, sin. 
See, he wants Judah to realize their state, that they may repent and be healed. And as Christians, we may want to say, well, why would God allow this bad thing to happen? Well, really the right question to ask is, why has God been so patient and merciful with me at all? See, the moment that you and I have sinned, we deserve the justice of God. That first time we've sinned. But God's been patient with us, hasn't he? And he's been patient with the world. And we know that um, in the New Testament, that that's God's forbearance, his desire that many more might come to be in Christ and to be saved. But anyways, verse 1, as we look at the devastation of sin, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days, or even in the days of your fathers. So what he's referring to here, and as we'll see, are locusts. See, locusts have come, and they've destroyed the land. They've wiped it clean. Destruction of the locusts was so bad that, that Joel's saying, look, nothing like this has ever happened before. It makes, makes us think about the coronavirus, isn't it? For many of us, we, nothing has happened like that in our lifetime. A pandemic, a, something that has been so serious, so um, worldwide, spread throughout the world, it's impacted pretty much the entire world, right? Has anything happened like this? And this is, again, the near fulfillment. So this is literal, literal judgment that has already happened. And he says here, notice in verse 2, he says here, he says to give ear. See, the Lord is using the destruction of the locust to get Judah's attention, isn't he? Give ear, hear. See, Stedman says this. He says, the Lord uses judgment now to awake us for judgment that's to come. As God even corrects, as God pours out justice now, it's, it's a warning, it's a wake-up call to, to hear that judgment, ultimate judgment is to come. And in verse 3, he says, tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. See, Judah was to learn from this, but so were the future generations. The Lord intended, the Lord intended instruction to happen in the home. See, parents are to teach and, and to raise their kids, or to invest their kids, to teach them of the Lord, tell them of all that God has done. It's not, the, yes, the church is to come alongside and to supplement that, but parents, we're responsible first. God says to teach your kids. The Lord said this also um, in Exodus 10. In Exodus 10, verses 1 through, th- 1 through 6, notice how similar this is, and notice even the context of it. There, we see in, in verse 1, Now the word said to Moses, go, in, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell him, or tell in all the hearing of your son and your son's son, the mighty things that I have done in Egypt, my signs which I have done against them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Verse 3, So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourselves before me? Go, 
excuse me, let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. And they shall cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth and that they shall eat the residue that is left, which remains uh, to you from the hell. And they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They shall fill your houses and the houses of your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your father's fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and he went out from Pharaoh. So notice here, did you catch it? What plague did the Lord, is, is the Lord even saying this here? It was the locust plague. And did you catch in, um, in verse 2 there, he says that you may tell it in the hearing of your son and your son's sons. So even back as they were coming and leaving Egypt, this instruction wasn't new. Parents were to tell their kids of this. And, and I just wonder, right? Did, did they? We don't know. The Bible is, is silent about it, so we can't say definitively. But what if, what if the parents were telling specifically even just about this one plague where he said to tell your son and your son's sons? As, as, as they would have seen the locusts now in their day, would, would that have clicked? Man, remember this was, remember the locusts and when, when, when God was delivering us from Pharaoh and, and Pharaoh refused? Remember the locusts that God brought in judgment? Man, why would the Lord allow locusts today? Is, is, is he judging us? Is there sin? Is there something wrong? Am I rebelling against the Lord? So do you see that? Do you see? And, and so even, even for us, right, we can ask ourselves, um, well, some of us might say we might be discouraged. Maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian home. I don't, I don't know. Maybe your parents n- never did this with you. They never sat and, and never told you of, of, of poured the word into you. But do you know the sweet thing is that you have a father in heaven who's willing just to come and tell you of all the things that he's done. And he invites you just to come and to sit before his word. And he'll instruct you. He'll teach you. He'll show you these things. And so don't be discouraged if, if maybe that wasn't your upbringing. But for those who do have kids, or maybe you don't have kids, but there's kids in this church, right? Are you pouring into them? Are you encouraging them, reminding them of all that the Lord's done even in your life and in his word? That's a command it's, that the Lord gives to us. But he goes on in verse 4. He says, now, now he's speaking, he's describing the, the, what the locusts have done. He says, what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. So there's four stages, or some say that maybe these are four different um, kind of invasions of the locusts, um, or there are four types of locusts. There's different interpretations um, on this. Some believe that the chewing locust describes the palmer worm. The swarming would actually be the locust. The crawling would be the creeping locust. The consuming locust, the caterpillar. Nevertheless, it doesn't matter, but the, the idea, really, what we need to know is that as these, all of this, these locusts came, there was nothing left. It was complete destruction. They, they wiped everything out, all the vegetation. 
And as the locusts would come, as, as they would swarm, I don't know if you've ever seen them, like Googled uh, image of a war- locust swarm, but it's, it, it's literally just this like, black solid glob of, of, of locusts. It's not like there's one or two here, like stink bugs, right? There's, sometimes there could be tons and tons of stink bugs around. It's not like this. I mean, swarms of locusts are literally, they're so thick that the radars can pick them up. The radars that they use for aircrafts pick up these swarms of locusts. They, the scientists, they say that when there's a swarm of locusts, that in one square mile, get, get this, there's 200 million locusts within it. That's what it would be like. And it, we haven't seen these types of swarms today. Um, they're not that common because what they do is, is if these swarms start to form, um, they'd catch them on the radar and they'll actually take airplanes and drop pesticides over them um, to, to kill the locusts. So that's, that's why they're not as common. But you get the picture, right? It's intense. It covers the earth. It's not like they just pick and choose. I'm sure we read in Exodus, right? They're getting in all of their houses and their building, buildings because they weren't sealed um, airtight. They would be everywhere. In the culture, the society at that time, they were in um, a, far, a farming society, right? They, they would rely upon their plants for their food, for their um, money. So if that was wiped out, they were hurting, that's, that's the context. They would be hurt personally. They wouldn't have food for their uh, families economically. They wouldn't be able to sell their crops. So it was devastation. I, I, I keep thinking about this too. Can you imagine what it would be like once all those locusts died and they were just everywhere? How nasty that would be. But notice... The Lord actually warned his people in Deuteronomy 28 that this would happen. In Deuteronomy 28, verses 38 and through 39, and then also verse 42, listen to what the Lord said there. He said, you shall, if, in, in the context, if you go read Deuteronomy 28, is if they disobey God's command. If they forsake him, if they, if they walk away from him, he says that this is the response. This is what will happen. You shall um, carry much seed out to the field, um, but gather little in, for the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards, you shall tend them, but you shall neither drink of their wine nor gather their grapes, for the worms shall eat them. Locusts shall consume all your trees and all the produce of the land. Notice God warned them that when and if you forsake me, I will bring locusts. So are you, are you seeing what God's doing? Again, in bringing the judgment, bringing the locust, he's, he's warning, look, this is the state that you're in. Wake up. Wake up and turn from it. Turn back to me. So it's, it's actually a mercy of God to, to send the locust, isn't it? It's merciful of him. And he says this in verse 5, Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail. All you drinkers of wine because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine, and he has ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. 
So he's describing the destruction. He says, awake, awake. A call for them to become aware of the situation. Realize what's happening. See, they've become so complacent in their sin. It's almost like they have... uh, they, they would be described as in almost a slumber, right? Their sin has lulled, this, lulled them into this slumber now, and sin can cause us to become lethargic to the realities around us. Lethargic to the truths of, of the Lord. See, he describes this specifically when talking about the drunkards. He says, awake, you don't even realize what's happening. You might have wine now is what he's saying, but it's soon going to be cut off because they wouldn't have grapes. They wouldn't have crops to make wine because of the destruction of, of the vineyards. Soon they would realize. But when he's describing even this nation that's to come up against the land, he's probably referring to Babylon that would come in 586 BC. And notice here, which is sweet, The word says in verse um, 6, he says, For a nation has come up against my land. And in verse 7, he says that he has laid waste in my vineyard and my fig tree. Isn't it sweet that the Lord calls Israel his own? (laughs) He hasn't cast them off. It's still his land. It's still his people. And because it's his people and because he loves them, that's why he's warning them and that's why he's correcting them. But in verse 8, he says, so he says, wake up in verse 5. And now he says in verse 8, lament. Or or that means to mourn. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of of her youth. So the idea is that imagine um, a bride who is engaged about to marry her husband or her soon-to-be husband, and he died. That's That's what he's describing there. That's the type of mourning that, the, that his people should be having because of the gravity of the situation. But he says in verse 9, the grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priest mourn who ministered to the Lord. The field is laid waste. The land mourns for, grain, for the grain is ruined and the new wine is dried up. The oils fail. So, the context of these verses is that there's no crops, right? So they could uh, have worship no more. They wouldn't be able to make offerings unto the Lord. Burnt offerings, grain offerings. There would be nothing to make it with. And because, because worship with God, or, or in essence the fellowship with God has been cut off, that's why they should mourn. Think about it. If I weren't, a good question to ask myself would I be sad if I couldn't worship the Lord anymore? And if it doesn't really affect me, if I'm honest with myself, if we're honest with ourselves in our heart, does it really matter? And if it doesn't really bother me, it's because I'm just going through the motions. But God's saying the reality is our, what, where we can fellowship, right, for them, they, were, they would come and, and all those offerings, the sacrifices would point towards Christ and their need for reconciliation, their need for forgiveness and, and, and pointing to the Messiah, to Christ. And he's saying that all this is done away with now because of the destruction of the land. And what's, what's the response? What would be my response? What's yours? 
And it's a reality check. And we're not, God's not condemning us if, if, if we're being honest with ourselves and we're saying, well, it would be kind of nice, right? I could sleep in on, I could go to bed early on Wednesdays or I could watch that show or whatever it may be. But then, man, where's the relationship? Come back to the Lord. But when he's saying it, when he uses this analogy in verse 8 of a, of a, um, of a virgin girded with sackcloth, lamenting or mourning for her husband, it's actually referring to Proverbs 2.17. We're there in Proverbs 2.17. He said, we read, um, for, or who forsakes the p- companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. This is, in the context there, it's talking about um, the, um, the harlot, the, the wicked woman who would go astray. And the word's comparing Israel or Judah, his people, to that, right? Of, of one who the companion of her youth, probably um, betrothed, about to be married, forgets the covenant of her God. See, that's the reality of the people. The relationship, they've forgotten him. They've gone astray. Also, in Isaiah 22, in verses 12 through 13, we see this. And in that day, the Lord God of hosts shall call for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth, but instead joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. See, the Lord in Isaiah is saying that this is the reality of where the people are. They should be mourning, but they're partying. Well, if judgment's coming, I'm going to live it up. That, that's, that's the state. See, they've broken the covenant with the Lord and going after idols. We talked about that in, in Hosea. In verse 9, it even seems to indicate that they were still offering um, sacrifices to this point. In all of their wickedness, Judah is still going through the religious activities. They're going to church, they're praying, but worshiping idols and living sin at the same time. See, the Bible tells us that obedience is better than sacrifice. Because obedience is more costly oftentimes than sacrifice, right? Than putting money in the plate. To obey means, man, I'm going to die to myself in a way. And notice the people who are called to realize this devastation. He mentions, he mentions drunkards. Uh, Joel mentions priests. He mentions farmers. He mentions vine dressers. You have the whole gamut of society, right? Man, those who are in ministry, those who are just the everyday workers, and those maybe who, who are just even forsaken and totally rebelled. He's calling them all to wake up, to pause and to consider the seriousness of what's going on. And what about us tonight? Do we know the seriousness of what's going on? And I'm not even talking about um, the wars going on in the world with Russia and Ukraine right now. I'm not even talking about the coronavirus, but something that's deeper within that, the sin that you and I in the world is born into. Do we... Have we, have we become so callous that we don't even have a heart for the lost anymore? Man, Lord, would you wake me up from that? Notice in verse 11, now he talks about the destruction, but now it's the joy of the people that are removed. He says, be ashamed, you farmers. Well, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because of the harvest of the, of the field, has perished. The vine has dried up, 
and the fig tree has withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. So he's saying that farmers are to, they're to be ashamed, right? They would be because there's no crops. Can you imagine being a farmer? Maybe if you're a gardener, I'm not a gardener, but if you are a gardener, you can relate to this. Or, or imagine going to work all day long, working 40 hours this week and coming home with absolutely nothing. That's what the farmers would be doing, right? They'd be out there planting, taking care of their crops, but they had absolutely nothing to show for it because it was destroyed by the locusts. They would feel ashamed. And isn't that the result of sin, right? Sin results in shame. The people's joy have been taken away because their joy was found in the material. It could be taken away, the source of their joy. See, if their joy was in abiding in the Lord and fellowship with him, it's not something that a plague could take away. It's not something that locusts could eat. And I think about Moses in, in Exodus thirty three fifteen. Remember when, when there was sin in the camp and, and God says that I'm not going to go forward with um, Israel anymore. I'll let an angel go with you into the promised land and guide you. And what did Moses do? He said, Lord, if you're not with us, I don't want to go. See, Moses, man, he was concerned about the presence of God. And that's where our joy is. It even reminds me about the Nazarite vow. Remember in Numbers, it talks about the Nazarite vow. And, and in that vow, part of the vow is that they were to drink no wine or have anything to do with grapes. Why? Because wine is a symbol of the joy that results from the world. See, and, and even in that, our joy isn't from the world. Our joy is from the Lord. Their joy has withered away. And God allowed them, God allowed it to be dried up. But I'm so thankful that the Lord offers us joy in himself. I'm so thankful that in Christ, right, we can be forgiven and we are forgiven and that we can come back to him. And like uh, Psalm 32 says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed or oh, how happy is the man or the woman to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity in whose spirit there is no deceit. That's the reality of our joy, isn't it? To be forgiven, to know that my transgressions has been forgiven, that my sins have been covered. So we move now to verse 13 through 20. And here the Lord calls the people to repent. So we saw the destruction, right? The present destruction of the locusts, the, the, the state of, of, of the destruction, no crops, we, we see their joy has been taken away. And, and the word says here, now that you've awakened, now that I've shown you this, turn. Turn from your sin. Repent. And ultimately, Joel is warning Judah of cut, coming judgment, the day of the Lord, worse than the locusts. We know that, that in that time, the context would be when the Babylonians would come and, and carry Judah away, right, captive. But ultimately, we're going to look at in the second half of the book, um, the judgment of God, the day of the Lord in the end times. So verse 13, he says, Gird yourselves and lament, you priests, well, you ministers before the altar, you who minister before the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withered, 
or excuse me, are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders together and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Notice that those who minister to the Lord, the people, and also the people, they were called to do a few things. Number one, we see that they were called to uh, gird to gird themselves or to prepare themselves. They were to lament, mourn, we've talked about that, well. They were to lie in sackcloth. And again, think about the context. This should all, God shouldn't have to call them to do this. That should be their response of what's going on. Even if they have, even, yes, they, they, they've, they've sinned and, and maybe they, they, they've, you know, grown cold in their walk with the Lord and, and, and even in repenting, that's the natural response. Lord, man, I've, God, I've broken your heart. Lord, I've failed you. Just lying there in realization of, of, of their state. See, a mechanical relationship will result in a mechanical response. What do we mean by that? Well, just do X, Y, Z, right? What are the next steps? But a heart response goes way further than that. But notice why. Again, he says that the grain and the drink offerings are cut off from the temple. They couldn't offer them anymore. God has allowed the offering to be made for the people to enjoy fellowship, but there's no more fellowship. So they were to consecrate or to call for a fast. Now, this is a little bit different than probably we, we might think about it, like fasting, right? Fasting from food for them is a big deal. See, how much time do you think it would take them to prepare a meal? Well, they didn't have a fridge. Sure, they might have some goods maybe in their house, some, some supplies that they need. But they had to go and they made everything from scratch. So a meal was time-consuming. To, to, to gather everything that they need, to prepare it. To, when, if they had to cook it, right, they would have to make a fire, get all the wood ready, have the water heat up. They couldn't just turn on their gas or their electric stove or use the microwave. There's no way I could survive, right? I, I think, what's the quickest thing I could eat? And that's it. And my mind doesn't even comprehend anything other than that. So for them, if they were going to fast, if they're no longer going to have to be preparing meals, if they're taking that time aside, much of their day would be freed up. And it's fasting so that they would then, as they lay that aside, they can spend it with the Lord. And, and they, they go to him. Additional time to seek the Lord, to, to see their real state, to hear from him. And they were to call the, the leaders and the people together. Again, think about that. At, the, at that time in society, it's not like they would just, um, you know, drive down to the church. But how, how costly would that be in terms of them walking to get the word out, to actually go there? They couldn't zoom in. They couldn't FaceTime their friend just to hear what's going on. But this is, they're changing the entire pace of life. And notice that they're to call a sacred assembly. In essence, they're, they're to come to the house of God again, and they're to cry out to God. They're setting everything aside, all of their routine. 
because they've fallen into a routine relationship with God and coming to seek him. I also just think that it's interesting. They didn't, God doesn't call them, of course, repentance is individually, but they're to do it together as a body and as a church. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say just, you know, this person or that person. Call all the people together. There's no lone rangers with them. And it just makes me wonder, man, what if we were to spend time fasting? What about if we were serious about coming together into the house of the Lord and calling upon him together? And you guys are doing that tonight. But I mean, even as a church as a whole. If we were to take time and, man, set aside, I was talking to somebody tonight, right before church, we went on a walk, and, and she said, um, we, she was driving by and she stopped and said hi to us, that for, uh, she decided to, no TV for the next 40 days. I'm not watching TV. How much free time would that give us? Or maybe, it, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's social media, or, or, or maybe it's a hobby, something, just setting it aside and, and, and dedicating that time to the Lord to be serious about sin in our life and to seek Him, to hear from Him. Because He says in verse 15, repent because, verse 15, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. And it shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Is not the food cut off from before, off bef- before your, our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods. Storehouses are in shambles. Barns are broken down. For the grain has withered. How the animals groan. The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of the sheep so, shall Um, suffer punishment. So notice, here we see the day of the Lord is mentioned. So the first time that it's mentioned in the Bible. So there's different days in the Bible. There's, you might note that there's different days. So number one, we see that, and we know, um, it's important to know that when he's talking about a day, the Lord isn't necessarily talking about one specific day. He's not, it's not necessarily a reference to 24 hours it's most likely a reference to a period of time, and he's calling that as a day. How do we even know that? Well, and again, it's not, this isn't, I'm, I'm not using this um, comparison for the time itself, like how long it will be, but remember the word says that one day with the Lord is like a thousand years, right? So it's a period of time, most likely. So uh, some of the different days mentioned in the Bible, well, first we know that there's the day of man mentioned. The day of man. That's in 1 Corinthians 4.3. And if you go and look there, uh, your translation probably doesn't say specifically the day of man. It talks about judgment. But it means under the, under the rule of, of man or where man is currently judging. Right? And, and if you think about it, the day of man is when man is having his own way. When man is having his own way, that he's doing his own thing. That's where we're living in now. Right? The day of man. Well, we know also the Bible talks about the day of Christ. What's the day of Christ? Well, the day of Christ is the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is the day of Christ. And you can see that. You see that in 1 Corinthians um, 1, verses 7 and 8, where there it says, So that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see there the day of Christ mentioned. Um, you can also go and you can look. We see this in 2 Corinthians 1.14 and then um, in Philippians 1.6 mentions the day of Christ. So then we also know that as we've looked at here in Joel, the day of the Lord. Now what's the day of the Lord? Well, it means when God will judge. When the Lord will have his way, right? Think about it. This is God executing his way. God, when God brings forth judgment. So there's, it's mentioned probably about over 75 times in the Old Testament. Um, it, it's referenced to as that day, the day, uh, the great day, or like we see here in Joel, the day of the Lord. So it's something that's significant if it's mentioned over 75 times in the Old Testament. So here's a timeline of what the actual, what the day of the Lord is. And, and as I go through this, you need to know that there's two different schools of thought. See, there's some who believe that the day of the Lord is this time period that starts with the tribulation and ends um, with the removal of the world after the millennial reign. So that would be at the beginning of the tribulation, right? All the way to the end of the, um, after the millennial reign, where, when God destroys, wipes out this heaven and this earth, and then he, he creates a new heaven and new earth after that. So there's that school of thought. There's some who say that it's just when that end judgment is, when, when God finally executes that final judgment. So you need to know that. Now, if it's going off the basis that it's that timeline, um, that period that starts with the tribulation until the removal of the world, remember all that happens within this. We've, we've studied this as we looked through Revelation. But remember, what does is, what is the Bible tell us? We know that the rapture happens, right? Where the church, God's bride, is taken up to be with him, the day of Christ. There's the day of Christ. And then what happens is the tribulation begins. That's after the rapture. This is the 70th week of Daniel, the day of Jacob's trouble. You've probably heard of that, right? And during the tribulation period, remember we know that um, Israel is prepared for the Messiah. And then the unbelieving um, man or the nations, they experience the judgments of God, the different um, judgment that God pours out upon the earth. And remember that during that time, the Antichrist is revealed. This is 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 7. We know that. And the Holy, because, the Holy, um, excuse me, because the church has been taken away, the Holy Spirit is no more restraining um, evil at that time. And then we, we know that it's the wrath of Christ, Revelation um, 6, chapter 6 through 19, where he pours out his wrath in the tribulation. And then in Revelation 19, we know that is the return of Christ. That's the, so all that ends the tribulation period. And after that, Christ uh, returns. He judges the nations. And we know that ultimately he defeats the enemies of Armageddon. And then he goes to the Mount of Olives. And then there's the millennial reign right after this, after, after Armageddon, where Christ rules for a thousand years. And at the end of the thousand years, what happens is that Satan is released, and, and some are deceived, and at the end of the millennial reign is the great white throne judgment, the great white throne judgment, 
which for those who are in Christ, we know that we won't be there, right? The great white throne judgment is for the unbelievers. And then finally, in 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 13, we know then that's when uh, God destroys this earth and the heavens and he creates a new heaven and a new earth. The day of the Lord, encompassing that period of time. So the context being that's the future fulfillment of the day of the Lord. But we know the Lord's telling Joel here, alas, the day of the Lord, judgment's coming. And, and again, he described um, the destruction, the food being cut off, joy and gladness ceasing, right? The seed shrivels. The storehouses are in shambles. They don't even have any more food. Barns are breaking down, are broken down. The grain's withered. Animals are groaning. Cattle are restless. God's judgment. And ultimately, because he's, he's, he's calling them to repent because the Babylonians would come and judge them. But nevertheless, it's all because they've forsaken him. And he's warning them in love. So verse 19 O Lord, to you I cry, for fire has devoured the open pastures and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the open pastures. So it seems like there was also um, a great drought there and and some type of um, large, massive fire that has happened that's also added to the destruction of the land. So where are we tonight, right? Where are you? And the Lord's, would we allow the current even situations that's going around us in the world to wake us up? We can become so complacent in our walk with the Lord. We can become lethargic because of sin. Is the Lord calling some of us um, to, to awake and to repent and to turn back to him? Maybe he's calling some of us to be like Joel and to, to warn others that we don't know when the end is near, or excuse me, when the end will happen. We don't know when that day. And, and maybe like coworkers or family who are talking about the current situation in the world, use that as a doorway to talk about Christ. Use that as a doorway to say, man, I don't know, and I don't know what happens if, if, if you know, we go down that path. But I know that I'm prepared because I, I know that I'm Christ and I know that my sins have been forgiven and you can be too. Do you want to know him? Man, just share Christ. Give, give the hope that's found in him. So Father, we thank you for this hope. God, I thank you that you are loving enough to um, just tell us, Lord, of the future in honesty Lord, and I thank you even that Christ came and that he bore our sins, Lord, that we don't have to fear um, judgment, God, that we know that we are in him and that we're made right in Christ. So Lord, I I just pray that you would even tomorrow, God, um, give us opportunities to share with those who don't know you. Lord, awake us to the situation and, and to, Lord, teach us, like the psalmist says, to number our days. God, I know that I'm guilty to assume that I'll have tomorrow and I'll share with that person tomorrow. God, would you forgive me of that and would we, would we just have a heart and a burden for the lost, Lord? So we thank you for your word.
God, I thank you for each and every one here and that you've loved them, Lord. I thank you for this sweet fellowship, this sweet family that we have. Lord, would many come to know you through even just this little body in southwestern Pennsylvania and and West Elizabeth. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.